Good morning. Um, sorry. <laughs> we are live at the Seville Center in Stillwater, Oklahoma, um, with Brandy, Shannon, and Holly this morning. How are y'all doing? Great. <laughs> doing well, thank you. Um, so why don't y'all go around one by one, introduce yourself, and tell us what you do here at the Seville Center um, and how you got involved. So okay. Shannon, you go first. So my name is Shannon Heiner, and I'm the victim and family advocate. Um, I started in 2015. Um, my role is to help non-offending caregivers um, when there are allegations of child abuse. Um, non-offending caregivers come with the child to the center, and I help families with resources. Um, as they come through here, there may be families that have a lot of needs, and there may be families that don't have a lot of needs, but anything that I can help them with to get through what they're going through is what I do. Okay. Brandy? And I'm Brandy Watts, and I'm the nurse practitioner here at the Seville Center. I've been here for 12 years, and I do all of the medical evaluations for sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, drug endangerment, neglect, um, any kind of medical needs that they have, I do those evaluations. Okay. I'm Holly. Hi, I'm Holly Chandler. I'm the forensic interviewer here at the Civil Center. Um, I've been here for 15,000 years probably now. <laughs> I think 15, going on 16. Uh, so my role here is to do the interview of the children. So I typically interview ages 3 through 17 or adults with developmental delays. Uh, but I interview children regarding lots of different issues. So most of the time that's sexual abuse allegations. Uh, then we also have physical abuse, neglect, drug endangerment, um, witness to homicide, domestic violence, kidnapping, uh, murder, anything that you can think of that happens here in Payne County or Logan County. Those are the kids that we interview. Okay. Um, so for people that don't know, explain to them what the Seville Center is exactly and a little bit of the history. How did it get started? Because it seems like it's been around for quite a long time. Yes. You want to answer? Oh, gosh. Okay, fine. (laughs) So in the 80s, uh, the child advocacy movement had not started yet. So typically in the 80s, when there was a child abuse investigation, kids were interviewed multiple times by different professionals. Mm -hmm. So that would be DHS, law enforcement. Um, Then the child would be brought to an ER. They would be interviewed there. So um, they really believed that interviewing children multiple times, it really negatively impacted their case. Mm -hmm. Um, And they realized that it was traumatic for children to have to talk about things over and over and over again. Um, So in the 80s, Bud Kramer from Huntsville, Alabama, decided there must be a better way to handle these types of cases. So he started the the first uh, multidisciplinary team. And so that's where instead of children being brought to agency to agency to tell what happened to them, um, children are brought to one place and all the professionals are brought to them instead. So instead of children having to travel multiple places to talk to multiple people, children come here and then all of the people involved in child abuse investigations come here as well. So DHS law enforcement, 
um, medical health professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, so they all come here so the child does not have to go place to place and talk, um, a lot about what happened. So now we have audio and digital recording. And so when a child is interviewed, it's videotaped and audio taped. So the child hopefully never has to talk about that, um, again to other professionals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I bet that really helps with the healing process because that is really traumatic to go through. And to have to already tell um, people in general what happened is hard enough. So, I mean, if you ever come here, it's very comfortable. It's very cozy um, and welcoming. And it's a very nice atmosphere. Um, and I, I believe that helps a lot, too. Thank you. Um, so, you don't just help kids though that are sexually abused because you were talking about kids that witness murder and things like that too correct so um so give us just a kind of a rundown how what all do you what what are the circumstances so we only accept referrals from dhs or law enforcement Mm -hmm. so if something has happened to a child we get those calls sometimes and we recommend that they call dhs and law enforcement and make a report Mm -hmm. uh those are the only way that they can access our services okay so you can't just walk in and say i was molested you have you can, but you can talk to someone, but then they're gonna yes. have you call the police. Okay. So typically Shannon really works with them about making a DHS referral or a law enforcement referral. If something has just happened, then Shannon is really good at contacting all the people and getting them on board and finding out what we need to do and what mm-hmm. best next steps are. Um, so you're the first person they really talk to. Um Most of the time. Um, It's really kind of Holly and I together. Mm -hmm. So when they actually walk through our door, um, sometimes it's myself greeting them, but a lot of times it's our interns. Mm -hmm. Um, They invite them into our family room where we are right now. Um, They get them comfortable. We offer drinks and snacks, um, show them around, show them where the bathroom is, um, allow the child and the the family to kind of just acclimate a little bit, get comfortable here um, so so that they realize this is a safe place to talk. Um, and then after, um, they've been here for maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, Holly and I meet with, um, the non any caregiver. And when I say that, that can be who brought the child here. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a legal guardian. Sometimes it's a parent. Um, sometimes it's, it could be a neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, but whoever that is, if they have, have legal guardianship of that child, then Holly and I are going to meet with them ahead of time. Holly explains her process and what the interview is like. Um, she allows them to um, ask questions, and then she also shows them the forensic interview room. And I just sit in there to kind of listen because I don't want them to have to repeat something mm-hmm. um, that they maybe have already told Holly. So I might take some notes, and then Holly introduces me, and then I let them know that I'm going to be meeting the, with them during the interview process. So I will take them um, to my office and, and talk with them about our services at that point in time. Okay. Um, and so where does it go? Like, what's the process? So who do they go to next? So then after uh, Shanna meets with the family and I meet with the, the family member or the non-offending caregiver, uh, just so everybody knows, we do not allow alleged offenders on site. Mm-hmm. So just to make that clear, uh, so that would be someone who brought the child. So usually after that, I introduce my Myself to the child, tell them that I'm the one that's going to be talking with them today, um, let them know that they're not in any trouble and they haven't 
done anything wrong. I just get to meet with them and find out a lot about them. Mm-hmm. So during that time, usually we start the forensic interview process. So I, I'm talking to the child. Shannon meets with the non-offending caregiver. Okay. And then um, after the forensic interview, if there was any mention of skin-on-skin contact or anything like that, mm-hmm. then the child is brought to Brandy next. Okay, and now, Brandy, it's your turn to talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, as Holly said earlier, a lot of our cases are sexual abuse, uh, and those are the ones that we forensically interview the most. And so, any child brought here is um, offered a medical evaluation. Um, it's never forced on them. Um, they're never, you know, made or coerced into that mm-hmm. medical evaluation. But really the goal of the medical evaluation is just to reassure that child that their body is okay and it's whole. You know, sometimes they'll talk about pain or discomfort. And so making sure they understand that whatever pain they felt didn't leave anything that's going to be lasting. Uh, so that's the main thing. But I also see kids not just for sexual abuse. I see physical abuse cases uh, if they have a lot of bruises or injuries from mm-hmm. that incident, I document that and take pictures. And then, you know, with all of my medical evaluations, I put together a report that goes to the investigating party, so law enforcement or DHS. So it's really vital in the pursuing the um, people that have done this to them. Yes, yes. Okay, and then so who do they go to next? After after the medical evaluation, they're generally done here. Uh Part of Shannon's role is following the family um, from the very beginning of the case all the way to the end. So okay. that that could be, you know, a couple of months. It could end, you know, shortly after their time here. But then she also follows them through if they go to court and through the court process. Okay. And so you, and you, do you keep in touch afterwards? Yes. So check in. Typically, what I like to do is after a family has been here, I try to follow up within a week to two weeks just to see how they're doing. If we have a very extreme case, I might follow up that that same day or the next day to just, just to see how they're doing to make sure that um, the services I've referred them to, that they're accessing those services, that their child's getting into counseling mm-hmm. if need be, um, and then... As far as the court process go goes, that doesn't take place quickly. Um, yeah. It's kind of a slow-moving process, but um, I work closely with um, a couple of prosecuting attorneys that prosecute child crimes. Um, for instance, today I just made a phone call this morning to a family that uh, we need to start working with through the court process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just contacted this particular mom and let her know that basically the prosecutor just wants to talk with her. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing has been set in stone, but she wants to know, um, is that child going to be able to testify in court? So she might meet with her. And so I just support the family through that process. Mm-hmm. Um, as things come up in the criminal justice system, for instance, usually the first thing that um, a family and a child might participate in is the preliminary hearing. Um, and so I schedule with the family and the prosecuting attorney to meet ahead of time. We usually meet a couple of times. And you go to the meeting too. And I go as well. Um, and again, that's just my role to support the family through that process. Um, and so I accompany them to a, what we call a prosecution interview. Mm-hmm. So that would be the first thing. Um, and that's a meeting just to kind of get to know the child, um, to know how the parent and the child are feeling about the process, kind of what they might want the outcome to be. Um, and, you know, the prosecuting attorney definitely takes those things um, to heart. She wants to hear how they're feeling about things. Um, 
And then the next time we might meet again and um, see the inside of a courtroom. So this process I refer to as court school, Mm -hmm. um, but I do it in conjunction with the the prosecuting attorney. Um, We'll see the inside of a courtroom. They can tour it. We want them to feel comfortable in the courtroom, as comfortable as they can as a child. And so we want to teach them about who's in the courtroom and what their roles are. So we talk to them about the court reporter and that they type on this little machine and that they're sitting kind of close to them. We talk about what the judge's role is. we talk about who might be in the courtroom. Um, most of the time, their, their perpetrator is in the courtroom or they're in the courtroom with them. From time to time, kids can testify outside of the courtroom, mm-hmm. maybe in another court, in another courtroom, but things are just um, kind of tied in and they can talk to the judge maybe through an iPad mm-hmm. um, where they're not having to sit in the room. Um, with their I was going to ask if COVID had changed that for a time, how it was done. I'd... No, not. I wouldn't say that COVID really changed that. I think it delayed cases mm-hmm. quite a bit, and so. Um, but I think they're finally kind of getting caught up on those things. But um, and so during that time, um, so we, we show them the courtroom, um, try to you know get them as comfortable as possible. I have a great book. It's called "What's My Job in Court." Um, I go over that with the child and the family, send it home with them so that they know exactly what they're walking into. Because obviously it's not um, super child-friendly, but we try Mm -hmm. to make it as child-friendly as possible. Um, The other thing that we have, and I wish she was here today, is we have um, a facility dog. Her Mm -hmm. name is Maria. Um, And she is available to children that are 12 and under Mm -hmm. inside the courtroom. Oh, wow. Um, That would have to be a a motion that uh, the prosecuting attorney would make um to get that dog into the courtroom. I didn't even know they could take her in the courtroom. Yeah, That's yeah. really sweet. And so she's trained to sit for up to I think four to six, six hours, hours wow. which that's never happened. I would hate to see a kid on the stand that long. Mm-hmm. Um I think the most that Maria has you know laid at the foot of a child is probably an hour and a half. And that was with a break. Oh, wow. Um so she's she's Aww. been an awesome um asset to to the child during that process we see a big difference um in just their demeanor and she kind of just brings their anxiety level down Mm -hmm. um children that are 12 and older um we are we have her available before and after court um there's a statute that reads that the child must be 12 and under and so kids that are older um don't get to utilize her in the courtroom but we Mm -hmm. bring her before and after we've seen a great benefit yeah. Great benefit to children. Um, I don't think I've hit this on the talking points before, but um, how many cases would you say you handle normally at the same time? Um, and if you know how many cases happen in Payne County um, that y'all are involved with over a month or over a year? If it's you- really hard to say mm-hmm. monthly because it varies so much. Uh, we have kind of some lulls, and then we'll have really busy times. But um, I don't I know how many forensic interviews that you did, but I did 186 uh, medical evaluations last year. And I think I did 311 forensic interviews wow. of last year. Wow. So that's three over 300. Right. Um, ju- and that's just reported, and we know that you know the majority of cases like that are not reported. Absolutely. So that would be called a delayed disclosure. So Mm -hmm. some people who've been sexually abused or abused uh, never tell or never say anything. And so 
Uh, most of the times, those are the children that we're dealing with mm-hmm. where they haven't told for a long time. Um, and they do finally tell someone. And so then we interview them. Um, there are cases, though, where we do have kids who disclose immediately to a non-offending caregiver. And um, we just actually had one last week where uh, we all responded. It happened um, mm-hmm. that early that morning. And DHS, law enforcement, me, Brandy, and Shannon were all here at 730 waiting wow. for them to arrive. Uh, and the case went really well. So we don't have a lot of those, but we do uh, have some children who disclose right away. Um, is there like a statute on how long you can wait before you come forward and how long they can be prosecuted? Like if it happened 20 years ago or five years ago, is there a statute for that? I know that there is. I think it's recently changed to allow more time for victims to come forward. Mm-hmm. I just... I don't want to give a time frame because I'm a little bit unsure, but I know that it has if been you know, changed. Comment. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. The, I don't know the time frame, but I know that we've had cases uh, in the last year where adult victims mm-hmm. have come forward, and those um, perpetrators have been prosecuted and tried. Um, but I don't know for sure what the statute says as far as how many years. Um, have you, whenever like an adult comes forward? Um, the reasons of why they waited, is it usually just when they're comfortable or because they were silenced or because they were scared? One of the dynamics of sexual abuse is that the majority of the time they know their offender and Mm -hmm. they care about their offender. So um, there's also a lot of grooming that goes into that process. And so it's not typically something that happens one time and it's done. Uh, So these children, you know, sometimes they have to reach an age even where they realize that the things that have been going on is is not appropriate or not Mm -hmm. right. And so I think the dynamics that fall around sexual abuse keeps them from disclosing a lot of times. Sometimes there's threats. I mean, sometimes they tell them, you know, I'll go away to prison or you're going to destroy the family or you won't be believed. so there's a lot of things that go into this psychiatric side of um, the abuse that, you know, goes way beyond the physical aspect of the abuse they endure. Um, how, well, hold on. I was just, <laughs> I had a train of thought and then I lost it. Um, how did all of you get involved in this? Is it just something that you were looking for a job or it was... You met someone or you came across it. How did this, how did you come here? So actually I was looking for a job um, over the summer of 2015 and a friend of mine who was the counselor here, her name's Mary Melton, um, contacted me about this position. She had no idea I was looking and so um, I applied and I interviewed and I've been here ever since. But I have always had a passion for working with families and children. Um, so my career has always been that. Um, and so, honestly, this has probably been my most favorite job. I, I love working here. And I'm really glad that Mary gave me that call. Mm-hmm. Good job. I wasn't looking at the time I had kind of periodically thought, oh, I might be interested in sexual assault nursing. And then uh, actually Jeff Watts, who's now the chief of police for Stillwater, he was the direct or he was the investigator at the time for child cases and seeing cases here. 
he approached me, him and my husband are cousins, and asked if I would be interested. And so I said yes. We were bringing, at that time, the Seville Center was moving child cases from Stillwater Medical Center and developing a medical program here on site. So Mm -hmm. I actually got to be a part of building the medical program um, from the start to where it's at now. A million years ago when I started, uh, I had no idea that anything like this existed. Uh, I was a rape crisis advocate in college, and so I just happened to move here with my husband, and there was an ad in a paper for an advocate. Uh, I answered the ad, and so I did Shannon's job for uh, a few years, and then that's when I started moving into forensic interviewing. I really love that portion, and so I just stayed with it. So I've been here for 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, and it's a really emotional, emotionally taxing working here and working with these victims and everything. Um, how do you deal with that, with everything that you um, you have to hear and see and talk about? Like, is there has there been a point where you've it's been too much and you've thought about walking away because it's just so much? I don't know that there's been a point for me where I thought about walking away. There have been points where I've realized I need to, you know, we've always had the privilege of working with a counselor, but there have been points where, you know, I need to talk to somebody about this, Mm -hmm. um, where I'm looking at everybody in the public and thinking they're a perpetrator, but... um, (laughs) I, I always, I always tell everybody we're super tight and close knit here. Mm -hmm. Um, we're friends. And so, you know, when the red door closes, I feel like we debrief with each other on those really hard and heavy cases. Yeah. You Um, have a support system here, which is nice. Yeah. We also get, I would say a good amount of time to, to take off. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that our, our board built that in for us years and years ago. And so, um, I recently took off Uh, about three days and Mm -hmm. I can tell I feel fresh. Yeah. Um, So taking off um, really helps and Mm self-care doing something that you love. um, Just taking time for yourself is very important. Yeah. Um, How has that, are you, you're all moms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How has working here affected your parenting? Because I know I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sexual abuse survivor and I think y'all know that from the last time I was here. Um, So I'm already like my kids with my, my best friend's house yesterday. And that's, I mean, he's 12, almost 13. And it's taken that long for me even to let him spend the night anywhere. Um, and I mean, and I'm, 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 I think everybody is <laughs> too. It's yeah. the same because I, my things happened in a small town at sleepovers. I'm sorry, Cushing. Um, but that's the truth. And it's at sleepovers or with family members, and it's all people that I knew um, and trusted and everything. And it was not one occasion, it's multiple occasions, and something I've been pretty vocal about. Um, but I am really strict about my kids. I have a few people that I semi-trust, and I will never say I 100% trust anybody. <laughs> and I am so sorry, but that is the truth. Um, and we are, you know, we have them talk. I have one child that something did happen to them and they actually are, I would say what the delayed um, disclosure <laughs> disclosure, because they're not ready. And they, I don't know that there was enough evidence for anything to happen. Um, but whenever they're ready, they, they know that they can talk about that and do what needs to be done. Um, but it's 
still, and that's even with as strict as I am, something had still happened. And that was probably my biggest um, feeling of the failure and as a parent. And then even another family member, we had something happen. Um, and this is with people that we trust. And I, I mean, very much trust. Um, probably the higher level of trust. And then I was just like, nope, not trusting anyone ever again. Um, so how does that affect y'all as parents as well? I don't think that we can ever fully prevent something from happening to our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we just can't be there a hundred percent of the time. But I, you know, one of the things that I like to tell the kids that I see and I think is important for us to communicate to our, our, our own children is that you might not always be able to stop an adult from doing something to you, but you always have the power of controlling your voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the other thing I like to tell parents is even if you, there's a piece of you that doesn't believe your child, I think it's important for you to always communicate to them that I will always believe you yes. when you come to me. But I, I'm glad that I didn't, my kids weren't littler when I started here because I probably would have been crazy. My mm-hmm. daughter already says I'd ask for a social security number if I could get by with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These two, she, Holly has smaller kids. I have the youngest right now and I'm oh, the wow. crazy one. Who, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, They've known from a young age the correct terms for their body parts. Mm-hmm. We talk multiple times about touches that are okay and not okay, what to do if somebody does that. Um, but again, we we don't allow sleepovers. Mm-hmm. Um, we are very, very careful about who watches our children. But again, um, I think that's just from being being here yeah. and being so proactive. Uh, so it's it's difficult yeah yeah no, I'm the same I am and I'm the same with what you said I that was something that I think was a realization for me um as a mom is that I was like I can't prevent everything but I can help them heal and know how to deal with that because if they shut down and they don't talk about it um and they're in counseling and everything too for it um so that has been my main focus is helping them heal um, and be protected. And, and I think, and I take part of the blame because they weren't spoken to about those things as early as they should have been because I was like, you don't go sleepovers. You don't go do this. You don't go that went somewhere. And still, if I had maybe talked to them, it would have made a difference. I hope, but I didn't. And so I think it's important too to have the conversations that our kids hate for us to have, mm-hmm. even if they're acting like they're ignoring us or embarrassed by our conversation. If your children are in school, you better have had conversations yes, with them. Yes, because it's, um, it's kind of surprising how much happens at school, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's not just at yes. sleepovers. It's at, I mean, things happen at school, and that's that's another realization for me. Um, and so I would say um, – I had a thought and I just lost it, y'all. Okay. <laughs> um, what would you tell people that suspect something may be going on in a house or with a child or um, like if they have someone sleeping over and that child's acting inappropriately? Well, I mean, by law, we're mandated reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you suspect it, you do not have to investigate it. You do not have to ask a bunch of questions. Report it. Mm-hmm. You can either report by calling the DHS hotline, and I apologize. I don't have that number handy. Do either one of you know it by heart? I used to remember it. Okay. I'll put it in the okay. thing. It's 100, I, I think, 352-something. Google.com. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so report it. 
Mm-hmm. You do not have to know for sure. If you suspect it, report it mm-hmm. because you might be the only voice for that child. You can report it to law enforcement as well, um, one or the other, or both. Um, that's we could get on a soapbox about that because there are people that are like, well, I just wasn't sure. And mm-hmm. and then a year or two goes by and then that person feels tremendous guilt and then something Whenever did they actually out. happen to a child. And mm-hmm. so you could be stopping what is happening mm-hmm. um, or preventing it. Um, so I think it's very important that we as adults are a voice for, for children in our communities. Yeah. Um, what ages do y'all say are appropriate to start having those conversations with your kids? Because you said your kids are really small. Mine is, my youngest is eight, um, but we started having that conversation, thankfully, she's five or six now, um, but I didn't do that with my oldest. I, I think we do a big disservice um, when we teach our kids the names of their body parts. We go through, show me your eyes, show me your nose. Um, we make it weird for them. So, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's really important from the earliest when we start teaching them the names of their body parts to include um, the proper terminology for their body parts. Because statistically, we know that kids who know the names of their body parts by their appropriate terms or correct terms are less likely to be sexually abused. Mm-hmm. So, those conversations start when we start teaching our kids the parts of their body. Um, you know, yeah. so I, I agree. If they're talking, yeah, yeah, and so, talking. so the importance of that is so, as an interviewer, I've heard every name you could think of mm-hmm. for penis and vagina, and so whatever terminology they use, that's the terminology that I use in the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is so important to teach them the correct name for their body parts. Just as an example, like there was a a girl who kept telling her kindergarten teacher that her uncle kept licking her cookie. And so she's thinking, you know, like a a cookie, cookie. like the Mm -hmm. food, the cookie. And um, so later on, when she said that to her mom, her mom knew what she was talking about because she called her vagina a cookie. Mm -hmm. And so she had been disclosing, people just hadn't picked up on it because she was not using the right terminology. And so that's why it's just so important that you teach them from a young age. It's really a source of empowerment to them to have the proper terms. Yes. Okay. With my own children, I started very young and like around bath time um, when they were old enough to start cleaning themselves that's when I talked to my children about it um, this is your private area you're, no one's supposed to touch here I'm gonna let you start cleaning these areas and mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of where I started when they were young two and three years old um, I wanted them to be able to voice their thoughts about those things mm-hmm. um, yeah, I am really open with my kids now, obviously, um, but like extremely open to where they come and ask about things. I have a preteens and stuff, so they've come and asked about questions that kids talk about in school and things like that. And I mean, my kids are 8, 11, 13, almost 13, and 15, and they already knew what a lot of stuff was. And I don't know if it's just because we forget that we were that young when we even knew and we're <laughs> talking about this stuff already. But I was just really surprised and they asked about it. So, um, and my husband was a little surprised that I am so open talking about them. Um, 
talking about things whenever they come and ask about things. Um, I, I mean like masturbation. I mean things like that. Um, and they will come and ask about it. And he's a little taken aback because he's not used to it. But I'm like, it's really important. My, my mom was actually very open with me. And I did talk to them about everything. Um, but I still didn't tell them what was going on, what had happened to me. Um, and so even with that, it's still not a guarantee that they're going to tell you. But it definitely makes it easier. Um, and then just making sure that they know that they can tell you what's going on and, um, and being vocal about things. Um, and we still, like I said, my, my kid just went into a sleepover. We have a few people, um, that we have a few kids that get to come over and sleep over and stuff. But like, I have four kids that are also, you know, we have two boys, two girls, and we were just talking about this the other day. I was like, we're going to have to have a conversation because <laughs> uh, this is going to, we're going to figure out that if we still have sleepovers and stuff, everyone has hormones and stuff like that. I'm like, everyone needs separation or different nights and some kids, the girls are gone and then the boys can have a sleepover, things like that. And even then I still have really bad anxiety about it. And um, I feel kind of bad, especially in small town, even if I have friends um, that are moms and they're like, asking if my kid can spend the night I'm like no because <laughs> I have such bad anxiety about it um but it is just one of those things so it's a preference but definitely just talking to them um as much as you can and everything and that's from personal experience talk 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 um what are y'all's um so I mean y'all are here have y'all always been in this building Yes. So when we uh, first started 20 years ago, there was a small house in the SMC parking lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a parking lot now, <laughs> so they built us that house. Um, Dr. Grady um, had this house. It's been in his family for years. So 20 years ago, he donated uh, this house for us. He, um, and so we've been here for the last 25 years. Um, are y'all, so is this, do y'all have any goals for the future or are you good with how everything's going and just continuing and helping? We always have goals. <laughs> <laughs> we always have to do better. Uh, we actually, I mean, I was just telling Holly this morning, we've met a couple really big goals recently. So it's, you know, we're at that point where we're brainstorming, you know, brainstorming or thinking what's, what's next. Mm -hmm. uh, we have our counseling cottage, which sits right behind our, this main center. And then most recently we have the medical clinic that is, uh, we share a parking lot. Uh, so those were both two big projects. Mm -hmm. And, um, I feel like our goal is just to always be looking for whatever the, the changes in the community uh, require for us what kind of services we can we can add to improve on based on the needs of the families that we see coming here um and if the community wants to get involved because they can't volunteer traditionally because everything's confidential um but how can they get involved or how can they help or spread awareness i can speak talking yeah, yeah go ahead <laughs> so there are lots of avenues where where our community members can contribute um, one of the things that we're in great need of um, it's not the only thing but we have a yard to take care of so um, helping in our yard would be great we do have someone that mows but um, removing leaves and limbs and um, we have a great um, connection with the Payne County Master Gardeners um, and at least twice a year they work in our yard and oh, wow. plant beautiful flowers um, United Way Day of Caring. Um, sometimes people will come over and 
um, paint, um, so things like that. We have a local organization, um, well, it's a sorority, AO Pies. They come over and they, they clean our house um, every Friday during the school year. So um, there's things like that that can happen as long as we make it's prearranged and we don't have families here. Um, other ways, uh, maybe get involved during our planning of fundraisers. We, we have um, committees that can... Um, plan that that do plan those things and so we would always welcome community members to help help with those things um spreading awareness just talking about us um bringing in um community members to tour our facility so that they can learn more about what we do Mm -hmm. a lot of people drive by here and you know they don't they don't really understand what goes on behind the red door um so bringing in people to tour and we're more than happy to give a tour and show off our facility and talk about our services. So that's yeah. a few ways. Can you all think of We also ways have too? some wish lists on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So when children and families are here, they may be here for a really long time. So we do have a kitchen here. They're always provided drinks and snacks while they're here. So we take donations. We love snack and food donations. Okay. Um, and then if they're here over like the lunch hour or the dinner hour, then we typically like or pizza or something like that. So gift cards are always nice. Um, Really, anyway, they want to get involved. Um, We try to make that happen. We just have to protect the confidentiality of our clients. Mm -hmm. But if you guys have a better way or you're thinking like, hey, I would really love to do this, just give us a call. Okay. Yeah. How do they call? What's the number? Uh, 405-377-5670. Okay. Um, and is there anything else that y'all want to talk about or that you want them to know about the Seville Center? What does the red door symbolize? Maybe explain that to you. We've talked about it a little bit. I know we've covered it in the magazine, but. Right. It's always been painted red since I've been here. Mm-hmm. And so when we first started uh, designing our logo and things like that, um, we just stuck with the red door. So we have a red door on our facility next door as well at the medical cottage. And then we also have one at our uh, counseling cottage as mm-hmm. well. And so I think since it's been that way, it's just kind of a symbol that's really taken on. Mm-hmm. And so we just continue to keep the red doors. Okay, so um, is there anything else that y'all can think of? We are looking for a counselor. We okay. have a vacant position yeah. in, for a counselor. So okay. so you are looking for a job as a counselor. Uh, how do they apply? Uh, they can send a resume here. They okay. can call us, email us. Uh, our address is on our website at civilcenter.org. Okay. Um, so we have that position available right now. And then we also have internships available as well. Uh-huh. Uh, so we also have those applications online. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, if y'all are interested and you're looking for a job as a counselor and you want to work with um, victims of various abuse and help them, um, Go to this, is it the Seville Center? The Seville Center. <laughs> I yeah. was almost good, thecivillecenter.org. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I think we're all done here. Um, thank you so much for joining me today and for talking about everything and um, just sharing what people can do to help and ex- expect whenever they come in. So I thank appreciate you. it. Y'all yeah, done really thank great. You. Thank you.